Welcome to Radical Math Talk, the podcast dedicated to the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfomensa, and on this podcast, I will highlight the incredible educators who are reshaping, redefining, and decolonizing the way that math education is taught in our schools. In other words, this will not be your typical math podcast. My goal is to center the stories and hidden truths that will not only ignite a cultural paradigm shift in math education, but more specifically, explore the multiple ways in which math can be used as a vehicle for social justice and anti-racist solidarity. So if you are ready for a math revolution like no other, then sit back, relax, and lend me your ears as we embark on this journey together. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the newest edition of the Identity Talk family, the Radical Math Talk podcast. And this is the podcast for the revolutionaries in math education. I am your host, Kwame Sarfamenta. And for the listeners and viewers who have been following us through the Identity Talk Educators Live podcast, um, we want to thank you for your support and for staying on this journey as we embark on this new path. So why are we doing Radical Math Talk? What's the essence of it? Why are we doing this? Well, for those who don't know, when I first came to education, I came in as a math teacher. I've spent the past 10 plus years teaching secondary level math at the middle school and now the high school level. So currently teach high school geometry um, online, you know, at a school. And, you know, one day I just told myself, you know, we need to really talk about math in a different way. Because so often when we think about um, anti-racism, social justice, culture relevant teaching, all these other topics and concepts that we hear all the time in our education circles, we don't always get the chance to really talk about it through the context or lens of math. It seems like a foreign concept. So with this podcast, really want to explore the intersection between mathematics, anti-racism, social justice, and see what we can do to, to um, use this platform, this discipline that we love as a vehicle for liberation. So that's what this is all about. And I'm so excited um about this uh but before we get to the main thing the main thing if you're on youtube please make sure you hit that red subscribe button uh so you can catch episodes of both that day talk educators live podcast as well as the radical math talk podcast and we're always happy to receive donations no matter how big or how small to help us keep this platform going, to help us keep bringing on these phenomenal guests, these educators who are going to continue to pour into us uh, with their knowledge and their greatness. So for those who are um, listening from Apple Podcast, uh, Spotify, or whatever streaming platform you're listening from, uh, you know, please make sure you subscribe there as well. And Donations can be given to uh, Cash App uh, through the handle 
ID Talk for Ed, of course, with the dial sign in the front. And then if you're using Venmo, at Kwame SM. So thank you again for y'all's support as we continue to build on this Identity Talk movement. Now, for our inaugural guest uh, tonight, uh, we have a mathematician who is just phenomenal. Um, I've had a chance to just check out her work, and and I'm just really digging how she's putting a spin on math in a way that we haven't looked at it before. Uh, so in today's episode, we're going to be focusing on applied mathematics. We're going to be focusing on STEM and how we can use the disciplines as a vehicle to increase uh, representation of black and brown folks uh, because that's something that we're still talking about even in 2021 and you know this sister is really doing a great job in ensuring that we amplify uh, that message and, and really address the issue so listen without further ado uh, let me bring on uh, Nicole Washington onto the podcast and she's going to share with us her journey as a mathematician, and also the work that she's currently doing to really push them forward. So let's bring her on. Welcome. Hello, hello. It's great to be here. <laughs> yes, it is great to have you. So how you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm loving this whole, the whole intro, whole platform that you have for this new podcast. So I am so honored to be one of the first to be on here. This is dope. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, you know, we're honored to have you. So yeah, let's, let's get right in. So I know that born, raised in Atlanta. Well, not born. Um, that's home. Not born, but raised there for yeah, sure. Raised. <laughs> raised there. So where were you born? I was born in Seattle, so I was actually raised between both wow. cities. I spent a lot of time from going from Seattle to Atlanta, back and forth throughout hey, childhood. Coastal. Very coastal, which really wow, impacts wow. the way I see a lot of things. They're two very different worlds. Okay. I can't imagine. So, so let's talk about your journey from Seattle to Atlanta. And we'll eventually get to Ann Arbor at some point, but some let's start point. from the beginning. <laughs> so for this new platform, the first thing that we love for our guests to do is just share the mathography. So the mathography is just basically uh, your autobiography as a mathematician, how you came across math at a young age how you've evolved with math and where you are now with it. So however you want to share that story, uh, the floor is yours. Yeah. This journey through math has been a long one. So my story with math really started in about, I would pinpoint somewhere between third and fifth grade. I was already really curious about math, seeing things in my elementary school. I went to Mary McLeod Bethune Elementary in College Park, Georgia. And I had teachers, all black teachers, I've always gone to all black schools, K through 12. They were very encouraging of me being interested in math just for leisure. Like I was one of those kids where I would go to the library, pick out some math books and just do math problems for fun because I was bored or just need something to distract myself. 
And I always felt like I was capable of doing it. So that always made me want to do more, learn more for the next grade level. The teacher that really changed the game for me, though, was my fifth grade teacher, Miss Tarla Williams, who if there's any way that she's on the Internet and sees this, please reach out to me because I've tried to find her before. Uh, in fifth grade, I was always getting my homework done all the time and it, like advanced of everyone else before like the bell would even ring. I was done. And she was like, OK, well, let's let's bump you up some. She went to the middle school next door, got their sixth and seventh grade math book and gave it to me. She said, you're going to start choosing your own homework. Just tell me what you want to do out of this book. And when it's time for math time, you'll just do that in the back. And she did that for me the entire school year. So I really do credit a lot to her of motivating that math interest because it was this teacher that saw that I was already moving ahead. And instead of like holding me back and just forcing me to stay on schedule with everyone else, she was like, okay, let's just keep it moving then. So from there, the math interest was just bound to stay. Now I have a bachelor's in applied mathematics from Georgia Institute of Technology. I have a master's of science in general mathematics from University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And now I'm working on my PhD in mathematics education, where I actually study how Black students engage with different um, informal learning experiences, STEM informal learning experiences, like after school programs or extracurricular programs. And how can these programs be designed to make Black students feel more comfortable without having to lose their cultural identity? Because that was something I kept experiencing time and time again, was that I'll enter these math spaces, especially after high school. Remember, I went to all Black schools, K through 12. So after high school, I started going to PWIs. For those who don't know, that's predominantly white institutions. And I felt like I was constantly having to negotiate my ethnic and racial identity along with my interest in mathematics, which just didn't feel right. It's like, why do I have to choose like how I'm talking to people, how I want to just present in the classroom? Because there's clearly a cultural difference here because I was normally the only black person in a lot of my classes. And Same here. Like, it, and it could be really isolating. I mean, it was very isolating for me, especially in undergrad. So, yeah, that's what I research now. <laughs> Just from my oh. own lived experiences. Yeah, that was the case for me as well. Um, you know, when I uh, went to Temple University and mm. as a math major, um, more times than not, I was either the only black person in my math classes or the or one of the few black people in that class that was just the norm uh during my five years there but i want to ask you this when you first got to georgia tech mm -hmm. and you started taking your math classes did you get the sense that you were fully prepared to take on the rigor of those courses because i know for myself i felt like i wasn't as prepared as I should have been to take on uh, the courses, but I managed to persevere through and and graduate, but it, it wasn't an easy road. So I'm, I'm wondering what your role was like um, as an undergrad. It wasn't that bad my first okay. two years. It wasn't until I started getting into the proof-based courses, which I had never, I went K through 12, then freshman, sophomore year, never really engaging with proofs. Okay. And that's something that a lot of math majors experience. And that's what really made me, I think that's when like the imposter syndrome and whatnot really started to settle in. Cause I was like, mm. this is not the math I've known all these years. This is not what I was interacting with. Calculus, fine. Calculus one through three were perfectly fine. Differential equations, perfectly fine. My computer science classes, perfectly fine. 
they put me in, uh, I think it was linear vector spaces was our proof, our first proof-based course and then abstract algebra. Almost failed out of both of those classes. Oh my! And God. it was just, it was the, what I realized the problem was at that time was that y'all were asking me to learn two different things at once. You want okay. me to learn math content and you want me to learn how to produce proofs. Those are two different faculties of thought. Those are not the exact same things. Like, I don't even understand what math, like abstract algebra is literally abstract because I don't know if I curse on this, but it's abstract. Now, <laughs> now go for it. Go for it. It's abstract as hell. Like you really have to take your brain and just do, do like a meta look over all this mathematics and these structures and these groups. And that's not necessarily the same as applying uh, derivatives or integration or anything. It's, but you're talking, even in abstract algebra, you're still talking about the same concepts, but it's in a whole new language, a whole new process. It took me out terribly. So those first two years was cool. I also did a bridge program, which I highly recommend for anyone. If you're going to undergrad, if you're going to grad school, I don't care what, if that university offers a bridge program, so something that happens in the summer before you start your first year, I highly recommend it, recommend enrolling in those programs. Because most times they're trying to help you get a jump start so you could be ahead of the rest of the crowd. So when I did my bridge program, which was called Challenge at Georgia Tech, it was five weeks where we were taking the most failed courses for first year. So it was chemistry, calculus, computer science, and there was, I think it was a seminar course. And you get the whole first semester in five weeks. Okay. So that helped because it was like, okay, I had a first view of what's going to happen. I did really well that summer. So when I started my first actual semester, I had already seen all the content. It wasn't like a huge surprise. So that definitely helped me just, uh, uh, what's the word? Get comfortable. <laughs> Adapt. All right. I could have used that bridge program while I was at Temple. So I'll tell you what my journey was like. I started off with the first three calculuses, like mm-hmm. you did, right? One, two, and three. Now, mind you, in high school, the highest level of math that I reached was, I think, college level algebra two, something like that, okay. right? Yeah. So when I got to Temple, I'm ex- I'm exposed to calculus for the first time, mm-hmm. derivatives, integrals, all of that. So I'm working with them. You know, first, you know, first couple of classes were fine, but then when I got to um, calculus three. Man, that's when things started to get real. And then, you know, yeah. Can I ask you what, because I've noticed that at different universities, Calc 1 through 3 actually means something very different. So what was it in your Calc 3? What were y'all covering, like, I guess, broadly? If Um, you remember. Oh, man, it's over 20 years ago, so I'm sorry. I can't remember. But I just know that, you know, it started off as just, you know, you learn about the basics, like what's a derivative, you're calculating integrals, limits, like, you know, the basics. Okay. And then eventually it became more and more uh, difficult. And, and then the next class I took was linear algebra, which was cool because, like, oh, matrices and stuff. Like, I, I, like, I'm an algebra guy. Like, I'm an algebra yeah. guy, really. <laughs> so, like, anything algebra, like, I dig. And then eventually, you know, I did number theory, which was cool as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I did differential calculus. Mm-hmm. I also did differential equations. 
Um, and there are a few other classes in between that I can't remember. I'd have to look at my transcript. But the one class that really took me out was probability. Oh, yeah. Probability <laughs> took my behind to the point where I withdrew from the class midway through the semester because I knew, like, uh, you know how it is. Midterm coming out. Algebra. It's like, this is, I yep. already see me. This is not looking good. <laughs> Listen, midterms were coming up. Right. I'm in my dorm. I'm calculating my average. I'm looking at the syllabus. Okay. If I just, if I can pull off maybe a 67, I can then salvage my grade and yep. still have That's some life. <laughs> and once I didn't make that mark, I said, okay, I need to drop this course before it messes with my transcript. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I dropped it. And thankfully I was able to take a replacement course. So I never had to take yeah. probability again. Thank goodness. I had some options because probability mm -hmm. was probably one of the hardest uh, classes I took. But what was interesting about my time as a math major during undergrad was the fact that when I came in, a lot of math that I was doing was very much computation-based. Yes. Very procedural. Mm -hmm. you, weren't, you weren't trying to crack theorems and conjectures. It was really like, okay, here's an algorithm. Here's a Follow formula. These steps. Follow mm -hmm. these steps. Solve the problem. You get an answer. We didn't have to worry about explaining how we got the answer and why. It was very computational. Base. So then I get to Temple. Now we're doing all this abstract stuff. Now we have these theorems with all these variables, and then we're trying to figure out how to manipulate the variables in order to prove the theorem. That was yep. a totally different it's lens a whole for new, me. Yeah. It's like a, whole a whole new, new way, way of thinking. thinking. Yeah, and for sure. I always reflect back on those moments now that I'm looking at education. So when I was started my master's, I, I was doing my master's and PhD at the same time. So mind you, I'm doing a master's in math, but then a PhD what? in math education. So as I'm learning about all these educational theories and ideas, I'm still in the math classroom with some undergrads and a mixture of grad students. And I'm like, this isn't right. Like the way y'all are asking us to think about math, for one, you're asking all of us to think exactly one way, which I think is very problematic. Then we also have this issue that we don't get a chance to really explain the way that we are thinking. You know, it's either you get a right or a wrong answer, as opposed to did I learn something new or different from the week before or the months before that shows growth? But that's not what you're measuring. You're measuring whether in this one intense moment of testing, can I get right. a right or wrong uh, answer, which it made my master's very, like I finished it with no problem, but it made it very difficult the longer I was in the program because all I could see was just the problems with the way that math is taught, especially on a collegiate level. Like on the collegiate level, it's like all gloves are off and people are roughing it in the streets. It's like, it does not have to be this way. No, it, it doesn't, but it does get competitive at times. I can remember times where I'm in my math classes and I'm trying to get support from any of my classmates. Now, mind you, I'm one of the few black folks in this. In some cases, the only one. So when I'm seeking out support, I'm looking at either a white person or an Asian person. Mm -hmm. Yep. And or that... an Indian person, right? Because mm -hmm. those were the people who were occupying uh, my math classes at that time. And 
know, they'd be real stingy with it. Like, they wouldn't want to help you out. So I would end up going to the tutoring center to get support. And honestly, if it wasn't for me going there every week, I would not have passed most Look, of those math classes. Like, real talk. I'm not going to I was, I was real annoying in undergrad. I know it. Because I would, when I got to my uh, proof-based classes, you don't always have tutoring for those. Because there's only ever, like, five of us taking those courses. So who's going oh to tutor this? So what I would do, I knew where the grad student's office was. So all the math grad students shared a big office and they had their cubbies. I would walk in there and just say, hey, does anyone know how to do real analysis? <laughs> does anybody know how to right? do uh, whatever class I'm taking at the time? Because I need some help. And I'll just ask, like, hey, can you just explain why this proof does this? Like, why does this make sense? And I would be in there multiple times every single week. Just, I know no one said I couldn't be there, which is what I interpreted. So I might as well. <laughs> yeah, take advantage of that. Shoot, After. I would have done the same thing. I would have done the same exact thing. But, you know, long story short, um, after going through those five years of taking math classes, I knew probably after my junior year that I'm not going to pursue a PhD in this. Like the people that are in my class are all about cracking generational theorems and conjectures that have not been cracked for years. That, that was their goal. They were passionate about it. I wasn't that passionate about math to that degree. Mm. And that's when I realized there are levels to this. Yeah. So, I mean, I graduated. I think I might have had a two point, I don't know, two point five, two point six GPA in math. Got out. Um, like my my non math GPA was like almost a full point higher than my major GPA. Like that's how big the disparity was, right? Mm -hmm. But you know, I still love math, but I had to. I needed some time away from it after that. I love hearing that because the grade point average, when you understand how the education system works, like your GPA doesn't, it's really not a measure of what you know. It, was it really isn't. A whole bunch of other things. <laughs> and and I think, and I think I turned out pretty well for myself, you know, of course. I, I still graduated cum laude. Of Thank course. goodness for those non-math those non-math classes. Wasn't for that, <laughs> it probably would not have been the case. But I'm, I'm thankful. All right, I do want to switch gears now. So okay. we've been talking about your math journey. Now let's transition into your work. So we have this segment called "Show Your Work." So of course, if you're a math teacher, those are your three favorite words. Yep. Student comes up to you, they only give you a solution. Where's the evidence? Show me how you got there. I want to see the steps. I want to see your thinking on paper. So in this context, when we say show your work, we want you to show your receipts. You got a whole lot of receipts. You know, you're out here <laughs> starting STEM businesses, tutoring businesses, all kinds of things. So this is all about you just flossing a little bit. You want to show those okay. receipts, right? So, let's start off with your, your current doctoral journey, because in my other podcast, um, A Day Talk for Educators Live, I've had a lot of Black women in academia who have pursued their doctorate, and they're now 
professors trying to get tenure in the universities. Now, I'm not sure if that's the track you're trying to go with it or you're just strictly going for a doctorate. But um, what I want to know from you is, so far, just being a black woman um, out in, you know, Michigan, go Wolverines, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Blue, yep. (laughs) Right? What are some of the ups and downs that you've experienced so far in this journey? Who I was just talking to my partner about this, actually, because Mm -hmm. the most significant change that keeps coming up time and time was me going from a purely STEM field into a social science field. Because those two fields just operate very differently. The expectations are very different. When I first started my grad program, it was, let's see, I graduated from undergrad December 2016. I started my Mm -hmm. grad program by September 2017. So I had nine months off. I went straight into grad school. And the real difference was the amount of reading, the amount of writing, and realizing how much my actual opinion is needed in this field. Like it's not mm. until now in my fifth year that I'm really understanding that academia and being and being a doctoral candidate is really me voicing my opinion based on evidence and knowledge that I'm reading, the way that I'm interpreting the work, the way that I'm using frameworks is what's actually asked out of me. My first year, I was so used to taking math classes that were just like, like we said earlier, here are these steps to do these problems. You need to, you need right. to do well on this test, do well on this quiz, and then you're done. Then I started grad school, and we're in this discussion-based course where you wanted us to read 10 articles in one week, and we're sitting here just having conversation. But I was feeling like, I mean, is there still an answer expected out of me? Like, what am I supposed to say here? What am I supposed to do here? I feel like you want me to say something specific. And that wasn't the case. And it's not until hindsight that I realized that it was like, okay. I have to really change what learning means to me, which has become a large critique for me as an educator now. When educators, especially in math classrooms, have these goals set out, I'm like, first of all, how do you define learning? Is learning Mm -hmm. when students just reply or repeat whatever you said to them? Or is learning about students being able to critique and have opinions on these ideas? Because that can be a thing in a math classroom as well. And that came from my own experience. Something else in the doctoral journey is figuring out mentorship. I've had a couple of issues just with picking advisors and understanding the advisor relationship and how your advisor cannot be everything for you. That you have to have a team of people in your corner and have multiple mentors that can support you in different ways, connect you with different conferences, uh, read your essays for you, read your course assignments, help you engage with all the theories and nuance of literature. It really takes a, t- a team, a village to get through a doctoral journey. And these are all things I've just had to learn throughout. Oh, and most importantly, actually, is self-care. I crashed terribly. My third year of school, I was not taking what, like, good care of myself. I was overly anxious about a lot of things, had a lot of bad insomnia. And I literally had to put a pause on my program because of that. And I had to reassess what does my life look like as a grad student in my 20s? Because that's also a difference that I'm, I didn't go straight to work like a lot of other people. I went from school to school and I'm still in my 20s. So as my body is changing and like the neurons and everything in my brain are changing, I'm also in this really intense doctoral program trying to understand who I am as a person while trying to accomplish this degree. So that self-care component has been well needed. <laughs> Now, um, with regard to the self-care component, do you feel like you are grinding as hard as you were because you're one of the few 
as far as black women in the program yeah. and and there's like this sense of I gotta be ten times better than these other folks in this program. Well, not even just the program, I'm thinking about the whole world. It felt like the whole world was on my shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. Like I as have a whole. Someone, yeah, like I have folks from undergrad who are supporting me who want to see me do great. I have folks from high school who want to see me do great. I have folks back from my hood who want to see me do great. And that's always on my mind. And definitely all the students I've had over the years. It's like I chose to do go to grad school and do these things because I want to be a better educator for all of them. But the problem was I was so worried about doing everything for everybody else and was not thinking about myself. It's like, I have to change how I look at this because if I'm not well, there's no way I'll be well for everyone else. And what was nice in this new program was that I went from being the only black person in undergrad into a education space where I wasn't, I'm not the only black person. I'm not the only person of color. So I've noticed how that has done well for my mental health and not being the only person of color in my program, which is also why I moved back to Atlanta uh, while I'm still doing my PhD because Ann Arbor honestly was too white for me. Like most of my time I spent in Atlanta seeing black folks everywhere. It's like, I need that energy and the warmth. I'm also tired of the winter. <laughs> mm-hmm. I hear that. I hear that. Now you're talking about, cause I know you do some work with um, math educators as far as helping them improve their instruction so they can, uh, teach their students, right? Um, do you feel like in math, a lot of the work that you're doing when you're working with these teachers is around, uh, and you know, I don't know if you use the term, but how do you get them to dismantle those white supremacist tendencies as far as how we approach math? Yeah. Like the, yeah. you know, like the, the prescribed methods, not allowing for multiple ways to conceptualize math and these different topics and, and all the other things that we had to go through when we went when we uh were doing math. We we went through the same system, you know, yeah. but we weren't able to name it what it is. But over time, through education, we realized, okay. We probably weren't taught math in the best possible way, but some way, somehow, we were able to thrive and get to where we are today. So I right. want you to talk more about what that preparation looks like uh, with those math teachers. Yeah. So to be honest, I'm not always facing directly with teachers, especially not while I'm still in grad school because I don't sure. have full capacity. The way I make capacity, though, in a way that works with my life right now is through social media. So I'm very active on Twitter. Well, I've been off like the past month, but you can see all my other other old tweets where any opportunity I have to kind of show how there is racism or some type of sexism in math as it comes across my screen. I'm always making a thread. I'm always engaging with other people online to discuss what I'm seeing and how I'm seeing the problem and offering them resources to say I'm not just, you know, talking out the side of my neck. Here are some resources you can also look into. And if anyone wants to have continued conversation with me, you can come in my DMs. And I do that very well. When I was still on, I did that very often. So I like to have that type of intimate dialogue because there are a lot of STEM educators on the Internet. I was one of the founding members for the Black in Math Week that happened on Twitter during uh, when the pandemic first started. That was last mm -hmm. October. 
where we had a whole week of highlighting different mathematicians, different math educators who are black out in the world. And through that platform, I also was helping promote the same ideologies about noticing when you're uh, reprimand, reprimanding black kids for sitting a certain way or like having their bodies a certain way in class, like how that can really reinforce the idea of policing. When we know black kids are already heavily policed out in the streets, that does not mean they need to be heavily policed in the classroom where they also need care and love. So I also have some articles out there that I've written with a really good friend named Vanessa out in uh, Canada. She goes by the math guru, where we ran articles about how there's connections to police brutality and what's happening in the math classroom. So my way of really trying to help teachers see what's happening, because a lot of time, those of us in academia, we know what's happening, but we're having a hard time communicating with the teachers because teachers are busy as hell. They have a lot right. on their plates. So, you know, I also have grace with them when it comes to trying to pull white supremacy out of the practices is that they got standardized exams, which a lot of us don't like. They have to appease their, um, their team leads, their supervisors. They have these students, these parents. So it's like whatever way I can get the content to them easily without forcing too much. That's my method. And also connecting them with other folks out there who I know do workshops or anything else that they can also connect with. So building that community, especially with folks like you too, you know? Uh, for sure. Now, I meant to ask you this question to start off, but I'm going to just backtrack a little bit. So okay. on this podcast, um, you know, we want to try to educate folks on on what the different disciplines within math are, right? Yeah. So I was a math major, a general math major. So I was pretty much delving into all the different strands of it. Algebra, the calculuses, the trigs, the um, probabilities of the world. But, you know, you're doing applied mathematics. So if you could just take some time to just share with the audience, what exactly is applied mathematics and what does that entail exactly? So applied mathematics is, this sounds simplistic, but the application of mathematics. Uh, it's usually easier for me to explain applied math when I think about one of the other options that are usually put against it, which is pure mathematics. So pure mathematics sure. is usually that mathematics that's very theory-based, very proof-heavy. You're looking at all the theorems that have been trying to get proved for decades now and writing proofs all the time. Applied mathematics is very, very large field. Because you can use mathematics in biology, you can use mathematics in chemistry, you can use mathematics in social justice, you can use mathematics in law. It's all the ways that you can actually apply mathematics in other disciplines. So using those computational tools or using any other um, mechanics that we have in math, like numerical analysis. Numerical analysis is actually a good example. So numerical analysis will be considered, a, actually numerical analysis can be in both fields, applied math and pure. So in the applied math sense, this is the type of mathematics that you use to measure like uh, processing speeds in computers, or how can you make computers have less error when they're trying to process different programs or systems? That's where numerical analysis comes in because it gives you different tools and resources to actually analyze how efficient your system is. So that's like using computer science. You could use another applied math field like um, biostatistics, which some will argue that statistics is not mathematics, which is a fair argument. 
but something like biostats can still fall into the category of applied math because you're using, mm -hmm. using statistics to actually analyze biological phenomenon. So like COVID, we have used a lot of mathematic mathematics to try to understand the trends of how COVID is spreading and how it's impacting our lives. Uh, I've also used math, applied mathematics to help with legal cases. I have worked as an expert witness for law firms to help them just prove certain cases in the favor of whoever they're defending. So I've that uses a broad range of mathematics because it just depends on what the case is. Most times it's probability statistics being used. So applied math is really just how are you using math as a verb? How are you putting it in action? Wow. And thank you for, for breaking that down. And as you're explaining it, I'm thinking to myself, man, I probably should have just been an applied math major. Now, it's I don't even think they I don't even think they offered it 20 years ago when I was at Temple, but you know, that that's cool, though. That's what's up. My degree was really conflated in undergrad. It said applied math, but it was really, it was general math. It, I did a lot of proofs and theorems and et cetera that you would see in peer math. It's not until now when I look back at their course offerings that the Georgia Tech program is actually way more applied math now than it was when I was there. Uh, okay, I hear that. So, so you do a lot of work around stem education advocacy yes um particularly for black and brown women mm -hmm. which is interesting to me because i feel like there are a whole lot of black and brown women in the stem field even now and it's been like that throughout history mm -hmm. but for some reason we're still talking about increasing the representation um in that arena so from your perspective, how would you describe the state of STEM education uh, within the context of black and brown women uh, today? Mm. So I've noticed with STEM education, when it comes to black and brown women, there is a high concentration of us who end up going into education, which is interesting. You know, we'll get a STEM degree in undergrad. We notice that something didn't feel right. Something was uncomfortable. And we end up in a lot of diversity roles, outreach roles, education roles, which is great because I'm glad that we have the STEM knowledge and that we're capable of applying it to the people we care. But it's also like these are black and brown women are going to have a really specific way that we're engaging with STEM content, like actual physics and chemistry. And it sucks that there's not enough spaces that can really honor the way that we think about STEM, like the actual content right. itself. So it's more of a workforce problem when it comes down to it. Because a lot of times, black and brown STEM uh, professionals, they don't feel comfortable at their job. They don't feel like they're being respected. They don't feel like they're being valued for what they do know. And oftentimes, some of them do get forced into the outreach and diversity roles. You know, there's those of us who are choosing to be in it, and there are others that get pushed into it. And not saying that they don't enjoy it, but they may not have been their original goal with their STEM degree. So nothing about the women... I don't know there's so there's still so many of us and i let me also add there's still a lot of us who are in stem for real who are doing astrophysics who are engineers electrical engineers biomedical yes. engineers we're still out here doing that stem work it's just that we're working in places that aren't necessarily valuing our thought processes and how we're thinking all right and, and it feels like a katherine johnson situation where like a hidden figures like the mm -hmm. brilliance is there. So many hidden figures out there. You so know what I mean? Many. Just she's killing it in the game, and then 
but then she's not getting the opportunity to to showcase that she's she's being stifled. Right. And it's not and it's not her fault. Because like no, when you look at all. how the workforce is built up, it's very white leaning, very white male leaning. It's not necessarily a place where you feel like home. And a lot of my research, I look at how do you make black students feel comfortable in a STEM space? And a lot of it is about them feeling like they a sense of belonging. So those who are watching, sense of belonging is an actual concept in STEM education, whether a student feels like they belong in that community. If they feel like they belong in that community, that can impact their identity. Another concept, the identity is saying whether you see yourself as a STEM person, which also impacts your agency. Another term in STEM education, do you feel capable of actually using your talents, your STEM abilities? So if a black woman is not feeling like they belong in the community, they may have a hard time believing that they're actually a STEM person, despite all their degrees, despite their ability to be in that position that they're in at that moment as an electrical engineer or astrophysicist. And if they don't feel like they are that person, they're going to have a hard time being able to use the skills that they actually have. And a lot of times that has to do with the environment that they're actually in. Does that environment actually make them feel like they belong in that community? No, for sure. And I want to touch on um, intersectionality for a second, because I was reading a publication a while ago uh, from uh, Dr. Uh, Danny Martin. Oh, yes, yes. That was my um, advisor. <laughs> yes. Shout out to Dr. Martin. And, you know, he was talking about the racial hierarchy of mathematical ability. Mm. Right. Where you have black and Latinx folks at the bottom of this hierarchical structure. And, of course, you had white, Asian, Pacific Islander folks like near the top. Mm-hmm. So, I'm wondering from you, the racist, how prevalent is the racism within the STEM field? And also, you know, being a woman, do you also experience sexism? Right, right. Um, oftentimes, I break it down into three categories. I hope I can learn my three categories right now. There's the Math as content or STEM as content that also works. There's STEM as a pedagogy or as like an educational tool. And then there's STEM and or math specifically as we see it in society. Those are usually my yeah. three. So content. The math that we are using is part of a power system. You know, we talk a lot about the Greek philosophers, those in Europe from centuries ago, um, Archimedes, Plato, etc. And we, that's the math that we're using primarily. What's weird about that to me is that in that power system, when one person is accredited with the work, we tend to ignore everyone else that was around them that also contributed to that work. And just because that one person had that idea, how can we say that someone else wasn't having the exact same idea somewhere else in the world? You know, There was a power system that was promoting them and saying, hey, this is the guy we need to listen to. Hey, uh, our high society with all the money, listen to the math. Look, look at Pythagoras' triangle and let's keep doing uh, it. You know, that was the one that started method. with that. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas we definitely know already, um, oh, what's his name? Ron Eglas, Eglash. He's a professor at the University of Michigan. He has done a lot of work looking at fractal patterns and geometry within African cultures. I hate that I can't remember which country he looked at uh, particularly because we know Africa is not a monolith. But there was one culture he was looking at in the way that they were building their villages, how it was 
built in fractal patterns. Now, these mm. fractal patterns of how they were building their homes was happening way before any white man ever said fractal was a thing. Yet, we credit a lot of the fractal conversation in mathematics to the white man who had the power structure behind him in the Western world. So STEM content is biased. What we're learning in present day is biased. We just keep doing the same thing and it's pushed across the whole world. So then you move over to how we're teaching mathematics. Same thing. When our education system started, it started as part of a, a response to the war that we wanted to have like this a factory way to teach everybody the exact same thing so that we can beat Russia with Sputnik so we can be at the forefront of, of technology in the world which means all the students that were in those classrooms were white at the time, because this was before integration even happened. So our school system was built with white students in mind, and we've been applying that exact same teaching method all the way to now in 2021. We still teach all these subjects as separate, which is a part of like that factory system where you, know, you learn this, you learn that, you learn this, where we already right. know interdisciplinary learning is a thing and can be more useful than siloing our knowledge. On top of just like the structure of a classroom where you have someone in the top at the front of the classroom who's just lecturing to you all the time and you're supposed to write down and just repeat what they say. That's yep. only one method of learning. So that's part of how there's bias in the way that we're teaching because we're not inviting other ways of understanding knowledge in which I want to do a shameless plug about Montessori schools. I love how Montessori schools approach learning for kindergarten up to, I think they only ever go to like sixth grade or ninth grade. They are yeah, really it's usually like elementary. Yeah, they have an amazing way to follow the student's interests and that's how you guide the learning. Everything is very student-centered. So you have this bias in the way that we're teaching STEM content because of the structure of our education system. Then you have the bias of society. We put math and STEM on a high ass pedestal. We say we people do. who can do this can get money. They can get paid high enough money where they can do whatever they want in the society. I always have to acknowledge that as a black woman who has two math degrees, I still have a huge privilege, even within my own community to have a math degree. Cause there are so many opportunities that I've been presented with just because I know math that other folks would not have presented with them in any other field because of how our society looks at math. You know, everyone says it's it's objective. Math is culture free. It's not just like any other subject. There is room to critique what this discipline, how it looks and how it operates. And there's a lot more critiquing going on now um, with regard to math. Yeah. <laughs> and it's brought some controversy, you know. But you know what? That's the kind of noise that we need right now. And even you know, with that last comment you made, you know, I'm not nearly at the level of math that you are, and I still get opportunities as well. So it just comes to show you how rare it is to see, like, black mathematicians, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, in society. So, like, the opportunities that are available to us are in abundance, yeah. Um, compared to others because of just this one special skill, right? Mm -hmm. Just right. And thank you, that one special skill. Because that's also yeah. uh, that idea of like the singular ability. I've always attributed that with Eurocentric ideologies and whiteness. This idea to do one thing, where if you look in more Afrocentric cultures, we're usually about communalism, multiplicity. 
we are capable of doing a lot more than just one thing, but our labor system is based on Eurocentric ideas. So we're always on this single track of find that one thing to do in life and get really good at it. Well, I think that's why we think about America, you know, it's built off of um, industrialization, right? Yeah. That's right. just how, that's how things operate. Right. I mean, you're, I mean, you're a Michigan, you're close enough to, I don't know how far Ann Arbor is from Detroit, but you know, Motor City, you know, you right. working in the motor car industry. And if you lived in Detroit, you probably spent 40 years working at Ford or GM or one of the other big car retailers just on a factory line, putting cars together. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's that's something that's always been part of the um, American fabric, if you will. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, let's let's talk about some of your entrepreneurial endeavors here so you have here the stimulation escape room which i yes. feel is a dumb concept uh so talk to us about how you came up with the concept of stimulation and what do you want to accomplish through this uh project oh yeah one of my favorite favorite things to talk about <laughs> so stimulation escape room we are a company that's all about pushing against all types of isms, phobias, misias, anything that we've seen in traditional schooling or education, especially in STEM fields, we are pushing against it and trying to show people alternatives. But we're not just going to lecture to you about it because that's also in a traditional system. We like to make games. We like to make entertainment. So our primary thing right now is making educational escape room boxes that you can actually order and do our Afrofuturistic escape room, which is called Spacebox. So what we do at Spacebox, we center the whole storyline on this a fictional world that my team of writers has created about these black astronauts who kept catch a virus in space. And in your escape room box, when it comes to your door, you're given some tools to try to figure out how to help the astronauts with this issue of a virus in space. So Stimulation Escape Room came about because I was at, in, at Michigan. I was part of this group, the Graduate Society of Black Engineers and Scientists. And we had an annual outreach event called Stimulation. And during Stimulation, there was a really cool escape room that someone picked up from another department. And I took over the escape room one year because I thought it was really cool. So I kind of redesigned it in my own way, added some new like adventures in it. And I was like, dang, I'm not only do I like this, I'm actually really good at this. Cause I had a lot of teachers asking me if I could come back to their classrooms and do the exact same event for their other students when it came to the outreach event. So I spent the next year working with the incubator at Georgia Tech with, uh, with the team and we developed Stimulation Escape Room. Now, when the pandemic came, no, that changed our approach because before it was all about going into the classroom and building the escape room for you. Pandemic happened and it's like, let's pivot. And that's when I got privy to subscription boxes. Shout out to Black Girl Magic if anyone needs to get. Oh, like, Brittany. Yeah, Brittany Rose. Brittany Rose. Yeah. Yes, Shout out to yes. Brittany. Shout out to Brittany because she featured me in one of her boxes. And that's what exposed me to the world of subscription boxes. And that really helped me figure out how to pivot my company to do the escape room boxes instead. So that was a, it not was, it is still an amazing journey. My team, we actually have our first writing retreat in two weekends from now. And I'm proud to say that we were able to pay for everyone's housing and their transportation to get to our retreat. That way we could spend the weekend just being black creatives 
writing and thinking about sci-fi and STEM in our own ways. Ah, dope, dope, dope. Now, you were mentioning it's an Afrofuturistic experience. So, listen, the reality is we might have some white folks watching this. They probably even know what Afrofuturism is. So, as you break down what that is, can you also explain how you feel that Afrofuturism can serve as a vehicle to combat anti-Blackness within the STEM space? What does that look like? Yeah, so Afrofuturism is a really cool uh, genre. That's what you call it. It's actually, I think you put it underneath speculative fiction. So I'm going to start at speculative fiction before I jump to Afrofuturism. Speculative sure. fiction is a form of fiction where you're kind of taking the real things that happen in our world and you're putting a twist on it, whether it was from the past or how you're seeing the present, to make some type of social commentary. Now, that's not all spe- uh, speculative fiction, but the ones that I like to read are those that make are trying to make a really strong social commentary. So Afrofuturism is taking events that we get to take control of our past, take control of our present and say, how do we see our future? One of my favorite examples for Afrofuturism is actually from uh, N.K. Jemison, a very popular black sci-fi and fantasy writer, where she said, if you think back to the Jetsons, that old futuristic show, yep. where are all the black people? Were they under Not the cloud? Not a single one. <laughs> were they down on the ground, just struggling in the streets or living in a utopia? We don't know. Where are Black people in the future? So to me, Afrofuturism is the way to rethink what STEM looks like and how it operates. A great example, another great example of how we use Afrofuturism to really critique what STEM looks like and how it could be. In Spacebox, we have this one product that we feature that's fictional called the uh, OG Pomade. Actually, I think I have the name wrong. No, 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 it is it's OG Pomade, kind of looks like zero G. And the idea of the pomade is something that our black astronauts in our world can use for their hair when they're preparing to go to the space station. Because one conversation we never see mentioned in the space industry is how are we accommodating for different cultural differences biologically? Black folks have a different type of hair. How are we gonna accommodate when we're putting a helmet on What do we need to prepare ourselves to be able to go into space and travel to other planets? So we create things like that, that we can say, all right, what's the chemistry of this pomade then? What's going to work in an anti-gravity environment when we don't have the same uh, environments that we have here on Earth? So the real driving part of that Afrofuturism for us is always asking that question of what if and what could be. And as you're taught by Afrofuturism, I was just thinking about, so uh, Shuri, her character yes. in Black Panther. Yes. I mean, that's a very popular example of atro- yes. Afrofuturism Absolutely. right there. If you really enjoyed Black Panther and it was something new for you to see, that was like your first little snippet into Afrofuturism. And from there, I really want you to start reaching into more of it. You have Derek Bell, you have Itasha Romack, you have Octavia Butler. There's, there's so many authors out there who are doing amazing work in Afrofuturism. Um, Tomi Adeyemi, we, not necessarily Afrofuturism, but I think the work that she does with Children of Blood and Bone can still mm-hmm. stimulate new ideas about what tech looks like based on African traditions. I believe she's, ooh, I don't, I don't want to say her nationality wrong, so I won't even try. She's not American, though. So, Nigerian. <laughs> is she Nigerian? Okay. Nigerian, yeah. Okay, so she has a lot of Nigerian influence in the way that she writes and looks at technology through the Children of Blood and Bone book series. 
So Afrofuturism is really just taking our, what makes us unique. We know we're different from other cultures. So how do you take our unique cultural identifiers and what does that look like in a STEM field and what we need and what we can use moving forward? All right. Ooh, man, we, we could talk about this all day. Really could. We really could. We might have to do a part two for real, for real. I'm down. But, um, having these conversations. Yes. <laughs> But I see we're about to approach the hour, so I do want to start wrapping things up with our lightning round. So this is real light. We're going to be asking some quick hitter questions to close us out so we can know a little bit more about you outside of the STEM space. So here we go. Now, I know that you're really big on roller skating. Oh, yeah. It's an ATL thing. It you know is. I mean? uh, it's an ATL thing. So that's that's just natural. It's organic. So how has roller skating enhanced your quality of life? Because I know you mentioned that, you know, you were stressed out at one time during your doctoral journey. So how does roller skating help you out? Man, it's so freeing. Oh, man. Roller skating is like a whole nother sense of creativity for me when I'm moving around that floor. I used, And when I was in Ann Arbor, I used to go to the uh, tennis courts to go skate. And I would just be rolling around, frontwards, backwards, spinning, falling, tripping, you know, the whole gamut of things that happen with skating. And it just, I don't know, it's, it's one way for me just to like relinquish all type of external control that's I feel on my life and just to be free, especially with the music too, because I have a really good skate playlist that I like and I like to listen to it in that order because it just gets me going. <laughs> nice. Uh, your favorite math concept to either teach or or learn about favorite one uh, calculus i love teaching it and just engaging with it and specifically anything related to any integration and all those integration techniques even beyond calculus even when i did real analysis i really enjoyed learning about integration in and out and teaching it it was just always a lot of fun because i liked it and understood it <laughs> most difficult math concept you've had to learn at any point of your journey everything about abstract algebra that, that took a long time to understand it wasn't until the third time i took the class which was in grad school <laughs> a book you are currently reading and it doesn't have to be a book that you have to read for your your doctoral studies it could be something for leisure um, i read a lot of vintage national geographic magazines that i get from the thrift store awesome and if you can invite three influential figures to dinner, dead or alive, who would they be? I read this question in advance. I forgot to prepare. So, <laughs> oh, three influential people, and who would it be? Oh man, there's one South African math professor who I think is really cool. Um, her name is Mamel Thick. I do not know how to pronounce her last name, but she's really dope. I would love to be able to talk and meet her. Um. I really love Meg Thee Stallion <laughs> a lot as a musical artist. She does some really dope work even for the community. So I like her, du not just duality, just multiplicity and who she is as a person, or at least how she presents herself. Yeah. Then, college, college grad too, Megan Thee Stallion. Too. Right. Now I feel a banging rap artist. Like, it's amazing to see that. Doing, doing it for H-Town out of Houston. <laughs> and then third, ooh, ooh, oh, oh. Octavia Butler. Oh, I love her work. Absolutely, Octavia Butler. Awesome, awesome. 
So, Nicole, thank you so much. We have completed episode one of Radical Math Talk. We making history today, and we are. Thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for me. Oh, for sure. But before you roll out, please let the good people know how they can connect with you on social media and also learn more about the Stimulation Escape Room. So let them know all that good info. Of course. So if you want to reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram, it's M. It's Mathematical, M-A-T-H-E-M-A-T-I-C-H-O-L-E. Um, if you want to connect with Stimulation, the business, you can go to Spacebox Escape Room on Instagram, or you can visit our website, stimulationescaperoom.org. So the two places to connect with us. There it is, y'all. So make sure y'all connect with Nicole. Make sure you connect with Stimulation, Space Boss, Escape Room, all that. So thank you once again. And I'm wishing you a good rest of the day, whatever time it is. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right, good people. We're about to close out our very first episode of Radical Math Talk. And as I always like to say to my viewers and listeners, wish you all a good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Radical Math Talk. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and all other streaming platforms. We are always striving to provide you with quality content, so if you love what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at IdentityTalk4, numeral 4, educators.com. I'll say it one more time. IdentityTalk4educators.com. Thank you. And have a great day.